This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Carol Master along with Tim Stanovic in our interactive broker studio. So we talked about some of the headlines today from Angela Merkel making an about face when it comes to shutting down her economy. You've got cases, uh, virus cases passing 124 million, uh, Tim, deaths exceeding 2.73. More than 460 million those shots have been given worldwide. Let's get into it with Elizabeth Stewart, professor of American health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. The Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Professor Stewart, thanks so much for for joining us. What is concerning you right now? Because there's this interesting dichotomy playing out here in the U.S., which is millions of vaccines a day are being given in the U.S., but at the same time, we are not seeing that necessarily reflected in great news when it comes to cases in many parts of the country. Yeah, thanks so much for having me to talk about this. And I think you're exactly right. There's sort of some feelings of cautious optimism uh, with pretty good vaccine rates in the U.S. You know, it would be good to speed them up. But we're doing pretty well with vac- with the vaccinations. But at the same time, we really can't let down our, our guard. It, you know, we're sort of people talk about we're kind of at a race with the variants that are emerging um, and so we really need to kind of get those vaccinations out and into people's arms and also at the same time not let down our guard too much. We need to kind of give a little bit more time, some more physical distancing, continued mask wearing uh, so that we can really sort of look ahead a few months and really hope that we're in a much better place then. You know, Professor Stewart, we have um, some upcoming coverage in the Bloomberg Business Week magazine that's all about the potential for a COVID passport in order to allow traveling happening. But one of the concerns is that we don't really know how long the vaccine ultimately keeps you immune from potentially getting the virus again or getting a variant. And I, and I do wonder, what is it that you are watching closely to make sure that we get enough population vaccinated by what date ahead of any possible variants or another wave? Yeah, I think it's a it's a great question, and we are certainly monitoring that. I, I want to say that there is some sort of growing evidence or sort of emerging as evidence, I should say, that the vaccines actually give longer lasting and better immunity than infections. And so I want to sort of point out that it does, there's hope that the vaccinations will actually kind of help this even more than people sort of being naturally infected. Um, but we do really need to, you know, there are these variants emerging in different places, unclear whether there might be booster shots needed for vaccines, you know, sort of like Mm -hmm. we have flu shots every year. Um, So the scientists are working really hard on that. And I'm um, hopeful and really quite hopeful that they will sort of, you know, maybe we'll need those booster shots. But, you know, it does seem like the vaccines are really still working very well. And I think we'll know much better kind of where the country will be in a couple months. Hopefully most adults will have access to the vaccine you know, sort of early summer, uh, and that I think that will really, we'll really start to see some good results after that. What do we need to do when it comes to addressing other issues related to pandemic and lockdown, namely mental health and and the way that we've seen this pandemic and lockdowns affect young people, uh, especially those kids who missed out on a year of in-person school. Here in New York City, high schools just went back to in-person learning on Monday, for example. What do we need to do? 
Yeah, thanks so much for raising this. I think it's a topic that hasn't been getting a lot of attention, but we need to remember that the mental health implications might linger a long time, even after the sort of infectious disease pandemic resolves. As you noted, uh, we're finding in a lot of studies that sort of 18 to 30-year-olds and even those under 18 are experiencing really high levels of distress. You know, a recent Pew Research Center study just in the past month found that approximately a third of young adults were experiencing high levels of mental distress. Um, And that was the highest rate among age groups. It's a group where they were sort of just starting to get you know, emerging into adulthood and their kind of late teens and early 20s are looking very different than they sort of were expecting. So I think we're going to need really attention to screening for them, screening for all of us, really. Also, connection to services. Uh, There are effective mental health services available. um, And we need to make sure that those kids can sort of recover from this time in their lives. We're going to talk about this a little bit more, mental health uh, and what companies are doing. We've got the CEO of Accenture North America, and he specifically, they've been reaching out to their employees, creating programs, because they realize this is something that's had a tremendous impact on their workforce. Uh, I do wonder, too, if this has raised... Uh, overall, our awareness that mental well-being is as important, uh, Professor Stewart, as our physical well-being, and kind of taken away maybe some of the stigma of talking about it. And just got about fifty seconds. Yes, I certainly hope so. I um, I think this new attention is great. It's wonderful to hear about companies that are focusing on this and yes, screening programs, mental health well-being programs. It's what we're going to need in a lot of settings, workplaces, schools, all around. So it's great to see this this attention. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. I'm really glad to get some time with you. Elizabeth Stewart, she is Professor of American Health at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Tim, we see the battle. It is finally on, or at least it kind of feels that way when it comes to dominance in the EV market, which begs the question, is the era of Elon coming to an end? Ooh, and there's an established car company that has been getting a lot of attention (sighs) in terms of of its investment into EVs. Yeah, we're talking about Volkswagen. This is the subject of a story, the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. Bloomberg News, Europe Auto's team leader, Craig Trudell, wrote it, and he joins us on the phone from our London bureau, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor, Joel Weber, on the Axis line in Brooklyn. And Joel, I gotta say, the first line of Craig's story, he doesn't date a synth pop star, publicly puff on blunts or profess to want to die on Mars, but Herbert Deese is starting to look and sound an awful lot like Elon Musk. I love that. <laughs> yeah, uh, Craig, Craig did a great job with this story, and and you know I just want to totally be clear that you know for for more than a decade now I think Tesla has just dominated what um, a bunch of naysayers said would n- never be a viable space, and uh, by by being such a leader in the space, it it has absolutely transformed the future of the the auto industry. Um, and the question now is like, are there is there going to be meaningful competition? And the head start that Tesla's had like leads us to to now. And Volkswagen is going to basically be of you know a viable competitor in the very near future. They will have almost instant scale from from what we're um, able to kind of look at with their numbers. And we're gonna basically see a version of the world that starts to look a little bit more like streaming, where Netflix mm. also had a huge lead but it wasn't like other incumbents could enter the space and also have a decent business model. So, so Craig, how do you, how do you see this all, all sussing out? How realistic of a shot does Volkswagen really have here to take on Tesla's market power? 
Yeah, I, I, I think it's really interesting that the comparison we made to streaming uh, absolutely makes sense. And I think, you know, the company that we raise in this story that, you know, is a great example of what VW might uh, be like is Disney, where, you know, they, they have, uh, you know, all the hits. Uh, they have an ability to, you know, uh, bring out some new ones. Uh, you, you think about, you know, uh, Disney Plus and what a hit uh, The Mandalorian has been. Uh, you know, Volkswagen is, is a company that uh, has a lot of flaws and uh, they, they still have a lot to overcome in that regard. Uh, but Herbert Dees uh, really is dead set on, on, you know, really taking on Musk. And he's not, uh, you know, sort of uh, dismissive of, of Elon. I think that's one of the, the most interesting things about him. He, he really, I, I think, takes Elon seriously, ha- has thought highly of him, and, and has said so. He's been very public about the idea that they are sort of a yardstick for VW, which is really something considering this is a company that sells, you know, in normal years, um, more than 10 million cars worldwide. Yeah, that's a lot of cars. <laughs> hey, Craig, I want to home in on something that I really focused on in your story, and it reminded me of what Volkswagen has gone through over the last year. Skeptics, you write, could be forgiven for raising their eyebrows at the idea of going electric, and I'm paraphrasing you here, coming as it was from the same car maker that spent years gaslighting the world about, quote, clean diesel. Where is Where is Volkswagen in getting over that scandal? Because it is... You know, a, a, a tough message, I think, for the company, given its recent history. Yeah, it's it's still something that is playing out in the courts, and it's still haunting them. You know, things things that uh, that they're going to have to deal with in terms of more settlements, uh, and uh, you know, dealing with even questions about you know disclosure. A, a lot of those uh, sorts of issues uh, continue to linger. I think you know, largely uh, the world has you know kind of. Uh, more or less moved on. I'm, I'm sure there are consumers who, you know, did buy into the, the, the quote-unquote clean diesel, uh, you know, messaging who really felt betrayed and would, will never buy a VW again. But I think we have been surprised to see that, you know, especially in, in America where, you know, VW has never been, uh, you know, really big in, in the U.S., uh, but we have seen, you know, th- this is a company that, uh, while they're still small there, you know, they they really have come all the way back in terms of the, the hit that they took in the immediate aftermath of that scandal. Uh, you know, they, they remain a sort of bit player, but they're back to where they were uh, or were back to where they were before uh, COVID hit. And, you know, I think the other thing that bears mentioning there, uh, Tim and, and Craig, I'd, uh, we can turn it back to you on this again, is is the fact that as to to make good on basically epic deception they had to agree to electrify america and that has been a huge infrastructure undertaking um craig talk to us about what they've attempted to to be building um quietly during during uh the past couple of years yeah they they it was a massive settlement that they agreed to with the us and california and Electrify America is this affiliate that, you know, is part of uh, $2 billion, uh, was, was a portion of, of that settlement that needed to go to setting up uh, charging infrastructure and uh, sort of, you know, building up, uh, sort of educating uh, consumers in the U.S. about electric vehicles. And Electrify America is now the largest fast charging network in, in the U.S. Uh, this is a company that uh, w- was, you know, set up by Volkswagen, funded 
by Volkswagen, but as sort of a condition of the settlement, it also needs to sort of benefit everybody. It can't just favor Volkswagen or be, you know, close to VW. So th- this is a, a network that actually is being used by uh, Ford Mustang Mach-E uh, drivers, uh, and it'll, it'll be a, a network that will really come in handy for, you know, really the broader efforts of the industry to go elect- electric and take Elon Musk on. Hey, Craig, really quickly, 25 seconds. I've seen a picture of both Deese and Musk together. I think it was something like the Golden Steering Wheel Awards in Berlin in 2019. <laughs> could these two ultimately work together? And you got to be quick for me, 20 seconds. I, I could see them absolutely wanting to, to put their, the, their heads together uh, for a project. Uh, you know, there was a bit of flirtation even uh, that, that we learned about uh, back in 2018 during the uh, yeah. go, go Private fiasco. So these, um, these two could be friends. <laughs> yeah, and then they might actually become Sith pop stars. Who knows? <laughs> it's an incredible story. Craig Trudell, Europe Auto's team leader at Bloomberg News, along with Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. So it must read on this Wednesday is about Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger. He's charting a comeback for the company really to get back to its past chip making glory and deal with those current chip shortages. Here's what he told Bloomberg a short while ago. COVID caused everybody to step back a bit from capacity and build out in the supply chain of the industry. And it induced a radical increase in demand. So you have supply chains uh, scaling back a bit and demand scaling up radically wow, and now we're in a position that there's a meaningful shortage. And, you know, it's going to be a couple of years until that's fully resolved. Supply, demand, and balance, or is there a lot more going on? That, of course, was Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger catching up with our Emily Chang earlier on Bloomberg Television. Let's get into the story. Two of our top chip watchers, Ian King, he is U.S. Semiconductor and Networking Reporter at Bloomberg News. He's on the phone from our Bloomberg 960, actually, he's in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco, along with Anand Srinivasan. He's Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Semiconductor and Hardware Analyst. He is on the phone in New Jersey. Ian, I want to start with you. Listen, you and I have talked about this before. I've talked about it with Anam, but let's do the big picture. Remind everybody of the big backdrop when it comes to the U.S. semiconductor industry, because it, it's been struggling. It's been struggling in terms of its production, as in the ability to physically make chips. That's a, a skill set that's been fading. And Intel was the sort of last bastion of that, and Intel has had its own problems. So that's definitely a fade away, if you if you like. But Frankly, the industry couldn't be stronger in general. You have other companies and, and, and you know, who are actually designing and outsourcing their manufacturing who are going from strength to strength. And the U.S. is still by far the biggest, you know, pro- beneficiary of, of this sort of growth in sales of semiconductors via companies like Qualcomm, via companies like Broadcom. What does that supply chain look like, though, Ian? Where, where does it span? It it spans the whole globe, something that could be designed by an American company in its design bureau in Europe, then gets manufactured in Taiwan, then gets shipped to Malaysia to get packaged, then gets shipped to a Chinese factory where it gets put into an end device, then gets shipped out of China for sale in the US or Europe or anywhere in the world. Anand, come on in on this and kind of layer on top of it globally what's going on, because we keep talking about uh, kind of a a tech war, tech cold war that's going on or will be going on. And you see a lot more, especially the Chinese and others looking to develop their own chip industries. Um, Layer on that aspect of this, too. 
Yeah, so listen, uh, I think Ian framed it really well. There's two vectors of issues, right? One is the chip manufacturing constraints that we're seeing um, as a result of the spike in demand and the shortage in supply. And the second is the technological complexity associated with the production and where Intel has been struggling. Now, where uh, Taiwan's uh, semiconductor has not been struggling, it has been producing advanced semiconductors rather efficiently, um, so much so that it has cornered the market on advanced uh, transistor-based semiconductors that Qualcomm and AMD and, um, and Apple use. So the question is, Intel stepping into this void saying, hey, we can not only regain our past glory um, and manufacture these advanced logic chips um, and compete with the likes of TSMC, but also that we can do it here at home, providing a sort of a, um, a geographical counterbalance to TSMC, because right now all of the advanced logic chip making is with TSMC primarily, which is based out of Taiwan, and secondarily, which is uh, Samsung, which is based out of Korea. So the U.S. is trying to uh, provide a geopolitical counterbalance to that uh, uh, East Asian uh, basket, if you may. Anand, how does how so, does in, uh, how does Intel do this in the U.S. at scale for a price and cost that actually works? Yeah. So over the past couple of years, I'm afraid to say it hasn't, um, and that's where it has struggled. And um, um, others have taken the mantle of leadership away. Now, he, he, at the end of the day, it comes back to a focus on manufacturing this. There are, again, two vectors here is making the chips smaller and smaller or using transistors that are smaller and smaller so you can have more densely packed chips, thereby making it more powerful. Doing it at scale reduces the cost per transistor. The other aspect of it is that Intel historically has been architecturally uh, monolithic, one chip, um, uh, controlled by one die, and the industry has moved away from that. It tries to put together a bento box of different kinds of chips and made on different transistors and different technologies, and effectively it matches a workload. So Intel's morphing. Intel's got uh, Gelsinger's trying to do multiple things at the same time, shrink the transistors more effectively that they haven't been able to do in the past, change its architecture, and build it at scale to compete with TSMC. Um, Uphill battle, but on a relative basis, we are cautiously optimistic on Intel's chances before uh, compared to when Gelsinger uh, came aboard. So yeah. we think he, they've got a good shot. And he's he's kind of a new guy in town, uh, Ian. I mean, is he a game changer for this company? Well, he's the new old guy. Yeah, um, exactly. His, his, his tagline was, you know, the new Intel is the old Intel. And you got to remember he <laughs> is that joined good or bad? <laughs> yeah, he joined this company in the 1970s as a teenager, right? He left in 2009 to go and run VMware. But he, he was, you know, he is absolutely steeped in the company's traditions. And he's also a, a technologist, you know, to a very, he was a chip designer, part of the, the fundamental core of, of what Intel is as a chip company. He actually physically made himself. So, you know, back to what Anand said, it's, that's where the optimism comes from. It's like, at least you have somebody in control who seems to understand the problem because that was the concern with his predecessor, who was a financial guy. So people believe at least Pat has a handle on the problem and you saw the stock jump yeah. up yesterday on the optimism that, hey, he, he gets it, maybe he can fix it. But I think, again, to what Anand said and a lot of other analysts and investors have said, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's going to be 
a slow process and there's no guarantee of success here. Intel's birthright doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, and meanwhile, you've got Apple doing chips, right? And other companies doing chips. So I feel like it's, another, I, know, I know all chips are not the same, but nonetheless, it does feel like uh, the industry is definitely changing. Um, guys, thank you so much. Ian King, U.S. Semiconductor Networking Reporter at Bloomberg News, with us from San Francisco, along with Anand Srinivasan, Senior Semiconductor and Hardware Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence on the phone in New Jersey. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 10 minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close. And with us is Dave Mazza. He's managing director at Direction, uh, which has uh, roughly $20 billion in assets under management. And that includes its Moonshot Innovators ETF. That has about $324 million in assets under management. Dave joins us on the phone in New York City. Dave, nice to have you here with uh, Tim and myself. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. So talk to me about flows. Where are you guys? What kind of money is coming in, new investment money that folks are looking to put to work? What do the fund flows look like and where is the money going? So we're really seeing a, a, a contrast in fund flows across our both our leverage and inverse ETFs, which are primarily for traders, so folks who are managing their portfolios on a short-term basis, and then also in our thematic ETFs, like the Moonshot Innovators Fund. But what's happening is it's a bifurcation from the highest growth areas, which of course were darlings last year and to some extent this year. So think of semiconductors, think of technology, think of other disruptors like cloud computing. But then on the other hand, the most beaten down areas like oil and gas, regional banks, almost nothing in between is seeing flows. So all of other lineup is a bit quiet, but it's either those on the most extreme level with the largest growth opportunities and some of the richest valuations, and also those that either not necessarily benefit from reopening, but just simply have been so out of favor. What's the, what's the trend when it comes to ETF, the ETFs that you're seeing right now, Dave? I mean, we talk about ARK all the time, and, and it's certainly it's getting, it's getting a lot of interest. Um, but, but why are ETFs having a moment during the pandemic? Well, as we know, uh, the interest in, in investing and trading has uh, came back markedly uh, as, invest, as folks were spending more time at home. But what I find most interesting is ETFs as an investment vehicle has actually become a favored tool because they offer diversified exposure to areas in the market. So certainly we spend a lot of time thinking about the, the meme stocks and the next thing that's getting attention on Reddit. But unless you're really uh, you know, looking to make a big bet in some areas, you may be better off using an ETF because I can get diversified exposure to the S&P 500 or I could get a basket of thematic stocks uh, like we have with, you know, with our Moonshot ETF that are focused on disruption. So in one vehicle, an investor can build a fully diversified portfolio or and both have things that are more set in and forget it for the long term, but complement that with opportunities that they may see over shorter time periods or just that they're interested in without taking on so much single stock risk. So in terms of set it, forget it, remind me, is it based on an index or is it is there active management where names can change? 
So uh, when I say that, I, you know, I talk about some of the larger and more well-known ETFs in the market, tracking S&P 500 and MSCI Emerging Markets for that. The more recent interest has been in thematic ETFs. And those are either actively managed you know, by a, a team of portfolio managers, mm-hmm. like we saw with traditional ETFs, or done in a rules-based systematic fashion. So actually, what we do, which is different than active management uh, in the Moonshot ETF, is we actually scan corporate filings to, to using something which sounds complicated, but really it's just teaching a computer to learn what historically has been associated with innovation uh, and go out and seek those terms. So meaning innovative terms for biotechnology versus for industrials. Then we say, do these terms on average, do companies use these terms on average more so than their peers? And then actually, are they spending money behind it? So it's a bit of a talk-the-talk and walk-the-walk type strategy. So uh, by spending money behind it, are they actually spending on research and development? Because it doesn't make any sense just to build a basket of securities that may be uh, just simply using innovative terms in their corporate filing. But when you pair that with the fact that they're actually spending on R&D relative to their sales, you end up with companies that are actually have a corporate culture focused on disruption and innovation and are actually putting money behind it. So taking a deeper dive into in the Moonshots ETF on the Bloomberg, I, I see that, the, that biotechnology is, is really overweight, more than 18%. Software comes in next at, at 13%. Why are you so overweight biotech? So one of the reasons we're so overweight biotech today, you know, and of course I think the pandemic has put this at the forefront of investors' minds, is that there's so much exciting disruption happening there. Whether we're thinking about areas in genetic engineering or going back to you know, what happened with um, you know, two, two of the, the most successful vaccines for COVID. You know, that's using a brand new technology. Uh, MNRA is, is really a, a way to think about it is a, is, a, is a technology. It's not the traditional way that we um, have fought, have created flu shots. And it doesn't mean the efficacy of those vaccines are not as strong. It's just this was brand new. And when that's the case uh, for fighting uh, the, 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 the virus, which is so paramount today, you can now commercialize that in a, in a multitude of different ways. But there's also you know, other, uh, other biotechs in the portfolio. So Immunity Bio, for example, you know, they're creating customized cancer and disease treatments based off of your own DNA. Right. So the treatment and cells you might receive today are going to be different than what I might receive. Um, these, are, these are technologies which were not available even a couple of years ago. How much, just really quickly, 25 seconds, Kathy Wood, I mean, she has just like thrown off the, <laughs> kicked off the roof when it comes to innovation. How has that helped kind of even your play here that people are just want to have some money and exposure to it just very quickly? Well, I think it's great. If people are focused on it, our play is focused more on small and, and, and mid-cap stocks. So it's yeah. a great compliment to what they may be doing. All right, Dave Mazza, thank you so much. Over at Direction, joining us on the phone in New York. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.